Um, as you flip in your Bibles, I uh, want to remind you that we believe the Bible is the Word of God, and that when we're hearing the Word of God read, that it is His Word and not just the person who's speaking. So I'll be reading through verse 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Femi. <clears throat> if you were here last year, last year, last week, to hear Vince talk about what I said to him about this, he's like, he said last week, he's like, pulling it over keeps you humble. He said I said that. What I said was, you really need a servant to get up on stage and move something that you can move with one hand. That's, that's he paraphrased. <clears throat> but don't we all? Um, You might not have noticed when the passage was read, but there is this killer self-help success talk just dying to be preached from this passage. Um, there, there is this sort of every, everybody sermon. It's the talk that like a psychologist, MBA, success seminar leader, leadership specialist, super hip pastor guy would give from this passage. And, hold on, this is, I didn't put that in there. I should have taken that out. And it, it goes something like this. <clears throat> you are going to be amazingly successful. <clears throat> you are. And you are. And you are. Are going to be amazingly successful. And all of the principles necessary for your amazing success are right here in this passage. Okay? They're all right there. One, what you need to know if you're going to be amazingly successful is that... <clears throat> There will be death and taxes, and there will be turbulence in life. Whether you're unsuccessful at something, or whether you're successful, you better listen, because you're going to be an amazing success. There's going to be turbulence. That's just what happens. Things just get turbulent, and you've got to deal with it when you're a leader. That is, good leaders, whether you're leading just your own life, your own self, or whether you're leading the free world, good leaders acknowledge, and they face problems. So you see this right in the passage. There's turbulence. The church is growing. There's all kinds of different people in it. There's an argument that breaks out. There's a real problem. There's turbulence. And leaders go, hey, there's a real problem. We need to do something about this. They acknowledge it and they face it, right? And then they start with their priorities, right? That's what you have to do if you're going to be amazingly successful. Is you got to start with what your priorities are. What's your life about? Who are you? What are you going to do, right? And they say, right, we can't stop Preaching the word of God. That's got to be our emphasis. That's got to be our center. That's got to be our, right? And you need to realize what's, anytime you've got a turbulence and you face the problem and you're asking, what do I do with this problem? You got to start with, what are your priorities? Who are you? What are you about? Right? And then a leadership, leadership decisiveness is a gift to everybody following them. Whether you're leading your family or a friend group or you're at school and you got peers around you or whether you're leading a church or a country, whatever it is you're leading, decisiveness is a gift to the, everybody trying to follow you. Right? You got to make a decision. Know what your priorities are, get the data, figure out what you're talking about, and then you got to decide and you got to let people know what you're doing. Right? It's an important step if you're going to be amazingly successful, okay? And then delegation, once you know what you're going to do, and you tell people what you're going to do, and you've been decisive, delegation, letting other people do stuff, allows you to avoid mission creep and expand your influence, right? Because you can stay focused on the stuff that only you can do and only you should be doing, and 
the things that are the implications of what you do, other people can do. And your influence can spread, but your mission won't creep. And then you clarify roles and why, because as things spread out and as you delegate, you need to have a shared culture. Everybody's got to know what's going on and why we're doing it. Or things get really unclear. Nobody knows why we're doing it. And then you get like free radicals doing stuff and you can't build. You can't build a family. You can't build a relationship. You can't build a business. You can't build a church. You can't build anything if you don't have a shared culture. And so as you delegate, you've got to clarify roles and why. Through that, you build trust and you can achieve consensus, which leads to unity. And then you've got to follow through on whatever it is you decide and delegate and do and teach. You follow through on it. And then you enjoy success because you're going to be amazingly successful until the next moment of turbulence. Now, is everybody who has been here, so amen, right? Let's, let, can we, now let's pray, right? Now, has every, is everyone in this room going to be a leadership success in turbulence because you've been here for the first X minutes of this sermon? Right? The answer to that question is clearly no. Right? Now, if I went to like a leadership seminar and there was some guy that did that for an hour and like dropped in a bunch of verses and cool stories about their life, I mean, I would feel like I got a good leadership talk. And that would be a problem because I might think that if all I did was tattoo, you could tattoo all nine of those things on your side of your forearm. Right? And you should be like, okay, turbulence is their problem. There's a problem, right? You could just work your way through that. The problem is, is that to think that if you understood those nine things, and you wrote them down, and you internalized them, and you did them, and therefore you could then become an amazing leadership success, that would actually be false. Because what actually produces the success in this passage is not that the apostles actually follow sound leadership principles. It's not what brings success. What brings success is the fact that the people leading and the people following had already been incredibly transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Jesus had transformed these people's lives. And they had changed these people who were ordinary people, who lived very ordinary lives, into utterly non-typical people. And because of that, these guys could do something that was not rocket science and be extraordinarily successful in the life of the church. And so one of the things I want all of us to see from this passage <clears throat> is that as we read through these first, the first book of Acts, which is through the end of chapter 6, breaks in, Acts breaks into three sections. The first one ends right here at the end of chapter, in verse 7 of, of chapter 6. One of the things that this demonstrates is that gospel transformation, when you understand the message of Jesus, what Christ has done for you, what he's created you to be, what he's done on the cross, how he will regenerate and transform you in faith, when you believe that for yourself, when you experience the miracle of the new birth, when the Holy Spirit comes to live and dwell inside of you, when you are drawn into following after Christ in his ways, when you ingest the Bible spiritually and it begins to remake you from the inside out and take the personality God has given you and enmesh it with the disciplines and truths of godliness and to make you in a, into a person of formidability that you did not yet imagine, when that begins to happen, <clears throat> it changes the typical behavior of human beings so that things that never work do. One of the <clears throat> phraseologies that you're going to start hearing from me from, from the next 20 minutes to 10 years, because there is a congregational meeting tonight, so I, I could be fired tonight, or I could, you know, I could be here for a while. Um, one of the things you're going to hear me say is the distinction between ordinary and typical. One of the terrible, life-destroying, aneurysm-creating idolatries that we have going on right now is the desire of everybody to be great. The desire of everybody to be radical. The desire of everybody to make a difference and to make the world a better place. <clears throat> Henry Cloud said in his book on boundaries one time, he said, he said, here's the problem with humans is that we get so involved in trying to control other people and change other things that we lose control of ourselves. One of the reasons that you and I are so out of control personally is because we have forgotten that God has given you one thing to control yourself. You. That's it. It's called self-control in the Bible. <clears throat> Almost all the virtues talked about in the Bible are not corporate virtues. Now, there are lots of things, there are lots of corporate 
There are lots of corporate realities and corporate values in which we are brought together. But it starts with virtues that you, yourself, are meant to grow in. And out of that, a community can be formed. And out of that, those community values that are just important as the personal virtues can be embodied. But virtues aren't corporate. Values are corporate. And you can't deliver on values without virtue. And the more we think our job is to make the world a better place, and to make a difference, and to be radical, and we really are trying to get other people to do what we think they should, the more out of control we become personally, and the less we're what we're created to be. Here's one of the things that you need to embrace as soon as possible, if you believe in Jesus. As soon as possible. No one, no human, is going to remember you. Okay? No human is going to remember you. You're going to live an ordinary life. And then you are going to die. And then if you have children, or if you have some good friends, they'll remember you for a while. And there will be some fuzzy, relatively foggy story in your, grand, in your grandkids. Great-grandparents are almost never mentioned in any household. Especially now that we wait till the end of fertility to even have children. So the great-grandparents are long, long dead. <clears throat> and then your grave will be unvisited and eventually unmarked. And no one is going to remember you. Okay? And your big accomplishments that are supposed to last generations will not work. Almost all of them will fail and most of them will fall apart. None of us will be notable and no one will remember us. Okay? No one's going to remember you. Okay? I think it was the poem Middlemarch that ends with almost all the important things that happen in all of human life are done by people who rest now forgotten in unmarked graves. All, almost all of the things that have really mattered for your life positively up until this moment have been extraordinarily ordinary things that without them you couldn't have survived. Diapers, breakfasts, whether it's provision of physical things like those or provisions of things like emotional connection, like at bedtime. One of the things that our culture is like is just in a flurry right now is early childhood development. Kids aren't developing well in childhood, right? Why? Because in our culture, we've, we're chasing all kinds of things, but one of the things that we don't chase nearly as much now is marrying a person, being deeply emotionally and personally committed to them, and creating a home together, which becomes an, a, a walled, nurturing nest of human life in which new children are brought forth in that place and are nurtured beautifully by two parents loving each other and working together to produce that. The, the more that falls apart, the more our whole society comes apart because the ordinary isn't happening. Now, there's lots of reasons for that, and it's not just that people don't like marriage. It's just, there's all kinds of things in that. Once that ball gets rolling, it just really rolls. But what it is, no matter how you slice that, or no matter how it's come apart, it is a failure of the ordinary. The things that make nations rise and fall, lives become great or lives become terrible, the things that will make you happy or make your life a depressing mess are all ordinary things. The thing every, every wife or husband wants is just to be appreciated. Right? People, people say they want vacations, and I wish, I, listen, I wish I had a 28-foot center console boat sitting in one of the ports in Destin that I could just get on with $3,000 of fuel in it so I could go chase bluefin tuna. I, like, I, that would be great, okay? And if we could create an expense account for that, that would be great. That's that, I could deal with that. But what, you know what I really need? What I just really need is for my wife to love me. That's all. I mean, I just, if she could just not treat me like an idiot, which she does really well most of the time, especially when I'm not being an idiot. Um, that's what I need. That's what makes me happy. And the normal order, I don't remember if you remember me preaching on Ecclesiastes a year or two ago, but there's this book about this guy who was really great, King Solomon. He was the richest. He had lots of ladies, and he built all these things that were supposed to be extremely notable. And he said, he said, I did all this stuff, and he said it was all, the, the word gets translated meaningless, but he said, it's, the word means a vapor. It's just, it's not that it's, it's literally meaningless, it's just vaporous. You breathe it out, and it just dissipates, and then it's just gone. Nobody will remember you. And, he, and then he's, you would think he would say, but you know what really, really matters? What really matters is loving and serving God, right? That's what he says in Ecclesiastes, right? It's not what he says. 
It's not what he says. Here's what he says. Here's what he calls the blessing from God. He says, when God gives people joy in the work of their hands and in eating and drinking together. It's a really weird thing to say. In our culture, it makes no sense at all. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, I was this great man that accomplished great things. I was totally radical. I did amazingly big things. I changed the world. I made the world a better place. And he comes to the end of his life and he goes, you know what? It's all a vapor. Because the minute I die, most of the stuff is going to unravel. Nobody, none of us have ever seen Solomon's temple because it's long gone. His money dissipated. His immediate son right after him split the kingdom. It all came apart. But he said, you know what I, what I see the grace of God in? The generosity of God is exemplified in a person who can eat their plain, normal, ordinary dinner and enjoy it. Or a person who can go to their job where they sell something not exciting. So they can work in the electronics department of Menards, okay? You're in the electronic, right? And somebody's like, hey, do you have one of those outlets? It's just like this, except instead of white, it's like a bone color. Like, do you have that? And you're like, yeah, it's actually in the slot right next to the one you took that one out of. Let me show you. And you take them over and you're like, here it is. I hope you really enjoy that. Do you want me to tell you how to install it? And you do this with an openness and a beauty and a diligence and a recognition that selling that person an outlet improves their life. And that it matters because they're going to plug their daughter's nightlight into that outlet. And they're going to they're gonna plug in the TV that they show their wedding video to their grandkids on. And, and, and they're going to, you know, and you, you sell groceries. Those people are going to eat that food together. And all those things matter. And they're all radically ordinary. Okay? And here's the thing that we need to recognize. Nobody's going to remember you. Your life is going to be ordinary. So here's what you need to recognize. The question is not whether or not you're going to be ordinary. The question is whether or not you're going to be typical. That's the question. The question of being radical or being great is not a question of scope. That's why, especially if you're younger, like if you're not old enough to have given up, like if you have good abs, like I would suggest that you just take the word radical or great and take that word out because the word is ambiguous. The word great can be quantity or quality, right? The word radical can also have a sense of quantity or quality. Like, if I'm going to be great, what could that mean? Well, it could mean I'm going to be a great dad, right? And my daughters and son will grow up and they'll be like, we had a great dad. And I never did anything really that interesting. But like, they're, they're released into adulthood and raised properly and morally formed and all those kinds of things. And they go out and they do not destroy people's lives. All right? And... And I go, and they turn around, they go, my dad was a great dad. Or I can be like, I'm going to be a great man, which means I'm going to have money and houses and helicopters. Right? It's the word great is ambiguous. I would encourage you to take out a achievement word and put in an aesthetic word. You want to live a life of beauty. Okay? Oftentimes, typical human lives let go of what, because beauty and, and honor, for example, or goodness, art is supposed, okay, so this then leads to a discussion on art, which is, of course, terribly confused in our culture. Good art is that which ennobles the human spirit and life. That's what good art is, broad definition, okay? And so a life that is beautiful is one that ennobles. Okay, another concept we just don't have any category for. But it's because we really misunderstand human nature, right? One of the, um, one of the uh, dichotomies, Alexa and I believe in, and I promise this relates to ordinary, is th- this is the, the Gibson marriage dichotomy, okay? Some of you have heard this before, but it's useful at this moment. The Gibson marriage dichotomy is this. I am totally safe in the loving relationship and divine covenantal union I have with my wife. I'm safe in it. And we're never more than a month from an affair. That's our marriage philosophy. I'm safe in the loving relationship and covenantal divine union I have before God in my marriage. And we're never more than a month away from an affair. Why? Because when I try to figure out how to live as a Christian, there's two things that I need to look at. One is, what does Jesus say? And what, is, what does true humanity look like in the man, Jesus Christ? And secondly, what is typical humanity? 
What do human beings that are far from God and he's not king to them typically do? And typical humanity, friends, is all around us. It is in the pew with you, okay? It is, it is surrounding your own heart. It's that rib cage and stuff around your heart and pericardial tissue. That's, there's typical, you can find typical humanity right there. Typical humanity, we don't have to go out, we don't have to go to whatever street. Typical humanity is right here. And if you watch typical humanity and you believe Jesus, and then you look at typical humanity, what you'll find is what that produces. And you will see that it is not what Jesus is trying to produce. And you'll go, I need to not do that. And they will be safeguards. For example, the reason, so, Lick and Nexie's marriage philosophy. On one hand, Jesus tells me my marriage covenant is permanent before God. And that is how I should be committed to it, and that's how my wife should be committed to it. We're followers of Jesus. It's just we're married to each other. Okay, right? At the same time, I look at typical humanity, and what do I find in typical humanity? People think that they can follow their heart and they're going to be okay. They, they believe that whatever storm of emotions they're feeling at any particular time, as long as they label it love, it justifies whatever it does in the destruction of anybody's life. And so therefore, it can be followed because that's what being authentic is. And so people let their heart, that is not your real physical heart and not your real, but just your, the storm of emotions, mostly driven by hormones and chemicals, driving you hither and thither in such ways that are enormously destructive in the least self-controlled and least reasoned way possible. And what that produces is carnage. And what it naturally produces is that for a man to bond emotionally with any woman I'm in contact with regularly, who I find moderately attractive. And what that produces in typical humanity that doesn't realize that's what a man is or what a woman is, is that they fall in love with all kinds of people. And then they end up having affairs and they're surprised. So much so and so typically and so normally that now we just shrug our shoulders and go, whatever. That's typical humanity. That's me. That's what I'm going to do. Right? You should see college girls when I, when I talk to them and I say, listen, they're all like engaged. Like you got the graduating seniors and they've got their little diamonds on and they're like, we're going to be married. It's going to be so awesome. And I say, okay, listen, here's what you need to be ready for. Your husband, you know that storm, that emotion you feel right now, that bondedness, that connectedness, that love for each other, that thing that you have right now. And they're like, yeah, I know. It's so great. Like, yeah. Your husband's going to have that with between four and seven other women over the course of your marriage. So the question is, how should you be married that you would be and your marriage would be his ally, that he would be honorable and great in that temptation. How should you be married? How should you relate to each other? How should you love each other? How should, so that's why we have the month rule. Because like, yeah, I'm secure, am I secure in my marriage in Jesus? Absolutely. Am I going to make sure that there is never a moment where I am not absolutely my wife's ally in being, it being easy for, it's her job to love me, but I can make it easier. Okay? It is her job to fulfill her marriage vow to me, but I can make it easier. And, it, and I'm going to do that. And so I have to function, and she has to function, as though there's a fundamental fragility in our relationship because our relationship is made up of humans. As long as there are humans in a marriage, it's going to be fundamentally fragile. And so we have the never more than a month away from a fair rule because for the foreseeable future, there will be two humans in our marriage. Right? But there are also two Christian humans in our marriage who want to love, serve, and follow Jesus and are being transformed by the gospel and who believe that what God has created in marriage can be beautiful, it can be fulfilling, it can be providing, it can be wonderful. So we live in that tension because we want to follow Jesus and we want to look at what we see in typical humanity that is totally at the opposite of what Jesus says. We go, I need to do whatever it takes to escape that. What disciplines do I need? What thoughts do I need to rethink? What understanding of my own nature as a human do I need to rebuild? What needs to happen so that I can escape typical humanity? Because otherwise, I'm going to do that because I am just like everybody else. And the only thing that's going to take me somewhere different than everybody else is if I do something different than everybody else, and it has to be pretty radical and pretty great and pretty something so that I don't end up there. But when the gospel transforms us and when we know 
what typical humanity is going to do, and we say, wait a second, I'm going to avoid that, what happens is that what you'd expect typically from human beings changes. Right? What typically happens in very significant racial conflict in which money is involved and the weakest among us is involved? What's happening in America right now? Um, not what happens in this chapter. But that's exactly what happens in this chapter. As you read, we'll talk about this next week a little bit more. I'm not going to talk about this week. But as you read through this, the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews had split up into different churches long ago. They weren't in the same synagogues. They were in different synagogues. That's why Stephen gets killed by the people from the synagogue of the freedmen. That's the Greek synagogue. There was already a church split with the Jews. Because they had different cultures and different values and some different things. And it's just trouble to be together. But in this church, they were all together. And when something blew up, what typically happens is what had happened with the Jews before them. They just, you just split. We'll just make a Grecian church, we'll make a Hebraic church, or we'll just plant a new church and just see who goes to which one. Right? But that's not what they did. What typically happens isn't what happened, and it's not because they lived out the nine leadership principles well. It happened because the people, both the leaders and the followers, were deeply, deeply transformed by the gospel. And they wanted anything but typical human experience. So let's go through. There's, there's four of them, but I didn't do them all last service, and I won't do them all this service. One is, the things is, you really see an acceptance and a response to the turbulence. Now, yeah, that was one of the leadership points, but, but here's one of the things I want to tell you. Um, I've done a ministry mainly to adults for 15 years now, and one of the things that happens is when people often come to my office, their problems are so advanced, it's very difficult to do anything. I mean, by the time people get to me for whatever reason, it requires heroic measures to do everything. And yet, there's other people who, you can really tell that they have a very active faith. Like they're, they're trying to grow in their faith every day. And they will come to me with things that aren't problems. <laughs> we be like, what do you think about, maybe we could do this? And I'm like, Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, okay, that, you're right. That could be a problem. Here's, here's what, you know, Lexi and I do, or here's what, blah, blah, blah. I'll just tell them, give them some advice. And very little in between. And here's the difference between the two. One group is anticipating turbulence because they want to grow. Turbulence is usually going to come from something we overlook or something we're blind to or some sin that we have. And so they're, they believe that they're sinful. They really do believe in the doctrine of depravity. They know that they're in a fallen condition. And they know they need to be really vigilant. And so they're looking for stuff. And sometimes they'll bring stuff up that isn't really that bad. And you're kind of like, well, I think you're going to get through this. And then other times you're like, yeah, you're right. That could, you, let's head that off right now. And it's real easy to head it off. And then other people, it's like, so when she shot me last week in the shoulder... I felt like maybe she was trying to tell me something. And then when she kept shooting, I thought, I think I'm right about that, right? A misunderstanding of your human nature will always lead to denial. And when you aren't at war with fear and pride in your life, you'll always be in denial. Fear is always terrified. Uh, actually, I have a slide for that one. Fear is actually terrified that if you accept that something is a problem, people are going to misuse your admission that it's a problem. Like if you say to your spouse, okay, I kind of realize that I'm not, I'm not, I don't really help you. I can expect you to help me, but I don't really help you. You won't tell her that or him that because you're terrified what they'll do with that admission. Or at work, if you're like, well, if I admit that I was wrong, Right? And that'll generally lead to avoidance or some kind of denial. Or if there's pride, you just will not be able to admit guilt. And here's the thing you need to understand about that, is the longer you go, the harder it is. So if you can't admit, like here's, let me give you an If you can't admit your parenting model isn't going very well when your kids are five and two, you think it's going to go better when your kids are nuts and they're 12 and 10? By that point, you are going to be so emotionally invested in the fact that you are a good parent you are not going to be able to be like, I think I'm doing something wrong and have been for a decade. Right? Or like, 
you have some kind of hobby cycle and your spouse is like, this isn't going to work. Or the way you talk to your spouse, they're like, look, I don't, I don't respond well to this. Or they just don't respond well to it. These are issues that the longer you avoid them, pride keeps saying, you've got to stick with this. You've got to double down. You can't change. Because if you admit it, you not only have to admit you're wrong, you have to admit that you've been doing it wrong for X amount of time. Listen, there is nothing better. Well, that's it. Okay. Hyperbole, right? There's nothing better than somebody who's been doing something for 20 years and has the guts to admit they've been doing it wrong. Very little inspires me as much as somebody who has been doing it wrong for 25 years and is able to be like, you know what? I've been doing it wrong for 25 years. What are we going to do now? That is inspiring. It's incredible. Because pride is always trying to say, no, you, nah, I'm, I'm a good man. The minute you think you're a good man, we got problems, right? I mean, I've had this happen where I'm like teaching on humility. I'm like, yeah, you know, humility is a big value. And then somebody's like, you're a jerk. And I'm like, I'm not a jerk. And I'm like, no way, I totally am. Why was I just offended by that? Right? If I'm humble and somebody goes, you're a jerk, I'd go, well, why do you think I'm a jerk? I really want to know because I might need to change something. But if I go, <laughs> right, I know that like, you see what I'm saying? And so it's really important to recognize you are probably avoiding things. We are typical humanity. Typical humanity avoids things. Typical humanity denies things. Because typical humanity does not want to go through the surgical pain of spiritual growth. You don't want to go through Jesus being like, yeah, you're an idiot. And you are mean. And you are hurting other people. And they are suffering because you will not admit you're wrong. And it is very difficult to open yourself up to God and be told that. And to be yanked around and to be remade. And nobody wants that. And it is the only way to live spiritually. It's the only way to live spiritually. That's one of the reasons why people come up with all these cockamamie spiritualities that, that, that don't include repentance. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed every new American spirituality that has been in invented in your lifetime or the lifetime previous years does not include repentance. I was wrong. I hurt you. I'm a bad person. They're all like, I'm going to find my little center and my gooey caramel and like, they're always like, I'm just expanding my blah blah blahs. No. No, no, no. No, the way forward is Jesus, tell me that I'm wrong and I will believe you. And I will apologize to the people I've hurt. And I will seek forgiveness and restoration and maybe even restitution. And I will clean as much as I can away, trust the rest to grace, and try to walk forward in some kind of humble, more formed, more Jesus-like sort of way. It is our absolute passionate, I would rather die than face that avoidance that keeps us in typical humanity. Accepting Jesus be damned. Whether or not you are a Christian is a question of faith. Do you believe? And if you don't believe in Jesus enough, to open your shirt and say, stab me if you have to. I trust you. You do not believe in Jesus. Avoidance is typical humanity. Flee it. Flee it. Look for it. Be vigilant about it. Ask other people if they see it in you. When other people affirm you for being just like them, be terrified. <laughs> Second one is a belief in the power of the word. There's so much lack of faith in the absolute transforming power of the message of the good news of the gospel of the life and death of Jesus. The life and death of Jesus and the message that he has died for you, he's created you, he's died for you, 
He seeks to make you the creature you were meant to be for eternity, that he will regenerate you in a spiritually supernatural way for the inside out. He will wipe away every pittance of guilt for your sin, which is much, and he will live within you in the person of the Holy Spirit with power. That message can transform you this second on the spot permanently. I've heard so many people say, you know, why do we even do preaching in the church? Because people only remember 5% of lectures. Yeah, well, here's the thing. You don't need to remember anything. You don't, need to remember, you don't need to remember anything when you walk out there. You need to be transformed on the spot with the truth. And so when, the peop- when things happen and they're like, we need to take care of these other things. One of the first things the apostles say is, I, not us. We can't. Not, not the 12 of us. We've got a different job. I want you to notice two things in this passage. The first is, this is not a private conversation. When the apostles get together to say what they're about to say, they do not, it doesn't say, they gather among themselves and said, they said, the twelve, that's the apostles, gathered all the disciples, that's everybody who believes in Jesus, all the complaining people, the widows, the whole lot of them. They bring them all together, and then this is what they say. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And you might think, well, it seems like something's been lost in translation there and wait on tables because that's a little pejorative. Nothing got lost in the translation. That is an intentional pejorative contrast. It is supposed to say, we cannot become waiters at the Dairy Queen so that we can neglect the job Jesus gave us to preach his only saving message to all of humanity. If you haven't been to the Dairy Queen, there aren't waiters. That's part of the joke, okay? It is meant to be this enormous stark contrast, and it's meant to be negative. And here's why. Because an enormous contrast needs to be made that has emotional freight. Because listen... Giving food to widows who are starving is important work. How dare they refer to it as waiting on tables? And the only reason they do dare to refer to it that way is so that you and I would understand how important the contrast and the importance of the work of the Word is in relationship to other things. Because here's what I know. So I've had conversations with other pastors, and this is in seminary students, and this is kind of funny, because they hear that High Point Church has done well over the last five to seven years, right? And so people have talked to me, and they've been like, you know what, you know, what are you doing, and how, you, how do you do this, and what are your, like, leader, what's your leadership thing that you're doing to get people to come and do stuff? And I'm like, all right, you want to know what I do? Here's what I do. I yell at them for 50 minutes every Sunday about Jesus. And I don't just tell them they're terrible. I do that a lot, because you have to, right? I say, I, I, tell us, I tell us who we are, and then I tell them who Jesus is, and I try to make Jesus look as good as possible, because as big as I can make Jesus look, it will still be like the top of his toenail compared to how great he really is. And I want people infected and infatuated with a vision of Jesus that is so great and so beautiful that it carries them with enormous conviction into everything in their life with enormous energy, courage, and beauty, okay? And then I say, hey, let's do this. And everybody goes, okay. That's my, that's my whole leadership shtick. And they're like, no. And you know, you know what they say to me? It's got to be more complicated than that. They're like, you're, you're doing things you're not telling us about. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I know everything I'm doing. I'm a very analytic person. And yes, I am doing a lot more leadership-wise than that. I play a lot more eagles. But you ask me why it's working. You, you didn't say, what are all the leadership things do? You said, why is, it, why is something happening? And I said, the reason something is happening is because when people, leaders and followers, are transformed by the gospel and they reject typical humanity and they open themselves up to Jesus in very profound ways and they accept that their life is ordinary, but it's ordinarily beautiful if lived towards Christ and in his way, people do stuff, and, they, and you can do totally untypical things, and people say, awesome, let's do it, let's kill it, let's get in there, let's make something happen. They just do. It's not rocket science. I, I don't know if you remember, so we went to Hope in the Future, right? We go to Hope in the Future, and I was there on Saturday in the morning, and I, I see Karen in the kitchen, because it's about lunchtime, and I worked in the morning, and so I said, Karen, I was like, what, um, 
you know, is there anything that we could do better? Or like, is there something that you wanted done that isn't getting attention? I was just kind of checking up on how she was feeling about things. And she was like, she was like, Nick? You have to picture a woman like that tall, right? <laughs> Nick? She said, are you asking me to critique the miracle? Or adjust, adjust, adjust the miracle? Do you want me to adjust the miracle? So I'm, and I'm like, all right, you're so spiritual. Can, can I just ask you again? Like, what? And she's just like, Nick? She says, same thing again. Nick? Are you asking? I'm like, all right, great. You see, because, listen. 50, 60, 70 people did a bunch of really ordinary things. Right? Really ordinary things. Right? Apparently, I offended Mike Schrader, and he gave me a thimble and told me to dig out this big cement thing from, like, seven feet underground. I mean, I did that. It took, like, five of us. Like, I worked on it for an hour, and then Rick came in for an hour. We had, then we had, like, a middle pitcher who came in and worked for, like, and then we had to bring in a closer. I mean, it was bad. Right? But we got thing out, and we just put a post, and that's all we did for, like, four hours. I had to go get my chainsaw and cut down a tree that they didn't even want cut down just to feel like I accomplished something. The the problem is is that the things that make the most difference don't look like they do. They're very ordinary and they matter because of the supernatural and functional character that Christ has given them. We could have the best run organization in the world at High Point. And accomplish nothing. And most, most organizations are like that. Even large ones. There's lots of people. They've got a big email list. And they've got no cavalry. You can blow the trumpet. Let's have people go to the, the elementary schools and read with kids who aren't going to reading. And like six people from a city of 400,000 go, I'll do that. Right? And I've, I've talked with people about that. And people, people have asked me, like, Nick, why don't you, like, I feel like you've got more leadership capital. Like, you could push harder. I said, no, just let the word do its work. I'm not in a rush. I didn't do anything. I did hardly anything my first three years. All I did was yell at people for Jesus. Right? Just let the word do its work. And people are like, what are you planning? And are you doing this leadership, blah, blah, blah? And do you have your little team? I'm like, I'm trying to do that stuff, but I'm pretty much incompetent. But what I am trying to do is let the word do its work. So when it's time to move, anybody can blow the trumpet and there'll be a cavalry. Right? Do you remember who the main person who encouraged us to go to Hope in a Future to work was? Yeah, Kurt the intern, you've already forgotten about him. Yeah, he's right there. Yeah, he, he, I mean, he's like up here. He's like, so we're gonna, we're gonna go to, he was better than this, actually, if you weren't here. But I'm just, this is, this is part of the point. And we're gonna go to this place and bring a shovel and we're gonna do some stuff. It's really great. You should go. And 70 people went. Right? Does that make sense? Be, here's why. Because we already believe that Jesus was generous with us, and so we should be generous with him. We already believed that that which we show to the least, the least capable of fending and fighting for themselves, we show that we believe in their inherent human dignity when we care for them. So the, the frail elderly, for example, right? They're human beings. They bear the image of God. They bear the dignity, and we, you can't get anything by helping them, Right? And so therefore, God says about the poor and the elderly and people like that, how you treat them shows whether or not you have respect or contempt for me. That's what God says in the Bible, right? Why? Because you can't get anything. Typical humanity can't get what it wants from those people. Right? But people who value ordinary human life and people who have gave themselves to their work and they're eating and drinking and could enjoy a real, normal, ordinary life and can tell stories about it, people like who value that can sit and listen to frail elderly people all day long tell stories. And enjoy it. And people who, who care about Jesus, they can go and they can work. Listen, I, wanted, I had a lot of work to do in my house. Okay? But I, I still had a really good time hanging out with Christians, doing this work, because I enjoy it. 
ordinary as it is. Does that make sense? And so, here's what I, I need you to understand. A commitment to the Word of God in all its forms has to be absolutely central in not just the life of the church, but in your life, if you're a Christian. And if you're not, you should become a Christian, and then it should be at the center of your life. And what that means is, is that um, God has been really gracious in giving us some of his words inscripturated or written down in the Bible. And if, if you don't read the Bible and you're a Christian, you can. And if you don't have a Bible and a readable translation, you can take the one in your pew. In fact, if you'll read it, you can take a couple of them. Because that seems, in fact, I know lots of Christians who are very successful people who that's the thing that drops out of their life. In fact, that's one of the first things that drops out of my life. I have to reset it all the time. I can't tell you how many silly things I've tried just to force myself to make myself not ignore the Bible. Because I think I know, I've read, the whole, I've read every part of it like 20 times or 150 times. And yet I need to actually read it again every day. And it's so easy, and I have to work very hard to make sure that that doesn't go away. But, this, but th that's what they say here. They're like, listen, the work the Word does in you is actually the most important thing you'll do that day. Same thing with the message. Like, I know some of you struggle listening for long times. And, and honestly, for whoever get, preaches who isn't me, for those of you who do like me preaching, I don't, I don't demand that they're, like, super awesome. What I demand is that if people have listened openly, were they given something that they could hear from the Word of God re-spoken through the personality of the preacher? Could they have interacted with the Word of God? Understand the Word of God as it's written and have it re-spoken so that they could bring it into their lives today. That's all I require from people. And then we, like, try to make them better at it. But that's but the only one thing we demand of people. Because the Word has to be absolutely central. Now, what that's produced in the last five years or so for me is insanity. And this is why. Um, as High Point Church has grown, if, you're, if you've come here lately, um, the church has about doubled in size in the last five years. And um, one of the, I, I, so the, the elders have noticed a certain amount of fraying in me. And so a couple weeks ago, I went up to Minneapolis to meet with a senior, senior pastor consultant. A, it's like a aneurysm avoidance intervention, you know, right? And so I rode up on one of those badger buses with like all the 18, 21 year olds that don't look or speak to you. Um, and and I, met with, I met with this guy over an evening in the morning. And he told a story about, like, being a workaholic, and he's just kind of like, you know, I remember when I was a pastor, and then, I, and then I was, like, removed. I came out of pastoral ministry, and I just got so angry when I would see a pastor on stage because I was like, that should be me. And he's like, you know, does that ring true for you? And I was, I'm, like, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's not—I've got an idolatry, but it's not that one, right? Because when I went on vacation to Yellowstone, I didn't think about you people for a minute for two and a half weeks. <laughs> I was like, where's the next buffalo? Woo! Right? <clears throat> but here's, here's the problem I do have. Um, I'm not a perfectionist because that's not a good enough word for what I am. Okay? That's a joke. I'll give yourselves a minute. <laughs> um, there is, and, here, and I don't accept the word perfectionist because here's, here's the reality. I know that when we, and there's, and there's a certain group of us that fall into this category, and people like to call us perfectionists, but it's a very standard human thing. I know that when things are done at a certain quality, they produce certain results. And when I'm serving other people, I want them to be at that quality. And I know darn well, when they fall below that level of quality, the people who I'm serving suffer. So if I spend two hours on my sermon, you pay for it. Right? Like right now. I'm just kidding. Um... <laughs> Right? There's a certain, when, when, I, when something I do falls below that level of quality, I start to feel anxiety. The world isn't the way it's supposed to be. And I'm not, I don't trust Jesus enough to work that out yet. The problem is, is that I used to just mainly feel that way about preaching. But what, but what I did was I actually sat down in this Minneapolis apartment, that, or this um, hotel room, which you paid for. It was very nice. And 
And I, and I, I realized that that was my problem. And I said, how many things am I trying to do at the level of quality that I can be satisfied with is good, not, not perfection, because I don't really care about that. There's a, there's a point of diminishing returns where you keep working harder and harder and you don't get anything for it. There's a sweet spot of like, you do the work and like you, you get, really get something for it and then you know where to stop. That's just called excellence, right? I, I believe in that, right? But then I started looking at how many things I think have to be done with excellence, and I, I made this little web, which when translated into English words, is, looks like this. These are the expectations that I've put on myself, not even the ones you put on me, right? And you go through them, and if you start looking at these, any one of them, for the most part, could dominate somebody's life, right? And one of the things I had to do is, as I had to say, listen, if I'm not going to jump off the balcony— I'm going to have to figure out which one of these I really believe Jesus wants me to do so that I can get in the place where I don't drive myself crazy in relationship to what I want to get done. Does that make sense? And so the only, the only reasonable, because and all of them are important. Every single one of those I believe in so deeply. It's one of the reasons why I can't let him go. I believe them all the way down to my marrow. And I believe they're all important. I believe if any of them aren't done, Real people's lives are affected and real people's eternities are affected, right? So I just had to ask this question. Which ones are ministries of the word and which ones aren't? That's my real duty. It's to teach the message of the gospel, inculcate it in as many people as deeply as possible. And so I think it's those. And I would actually actually include this one about young leaders and interns because mainly what I do is I teach people how to do ministries of the word. So I pass on the capacity for doing ministries of the word. But those are the main ones. And the reason why that's important for, for all of us is this. That the response to that recalibration is that I have to believe that what's true in this passage of the Bible is true of us. And that is that you care too about those things. That you care about whether or not people know Christ and whether or not they grow and whether or not widows get fed and whether or not children come to Jesus and whether or not not just this church but the whole church in the city grows strong and all of those things that are incredibly important. And in, the, in this passage, we get this, this office we call deacons. And a lot of history has revolved around this and it's been the office in like churches that people get kind of put into and it has this whole history to it and we need to escape that for just a minute and think about what this is because all it is all the word deacon means it's just a generic greek term for servant right it's all it's all it is it's just a greek word for servant and yet in this passage there are requirements for it right two requirements that they would be people full of the holy spirit and wisdom, right? As the church develops, by the time you get to 1 Timothy and Titus chapter 1, there's a whole list of requirements. But when you boil all those requirements down, there's like 15 requirements. But when you boil them all down, it boils down to basically exemplary Christian, is actually Christian, mature Christian. So full of Holy Spirit wisdom, mature Christian. But we still have this issue of like, um, yeah, well, deacon, who wants to be on the deacon board? That sounds like you're going to, like, buy candles and, like, wash the doilies and that sort of thing. And nobody, nobody's like, oh, man, that guy's on the deacon board. You should ask him out. I mean, like, that's not how that goes down, right? <clears throat> and so let's just pretend for a minute we just take that label that we've made really religious and we just put it over here. We'll just put it right there and let Jesus have it for a minute. And let's just make up a new word, tier three leader, Okay. Just make that up for just a second. A tier three leader is somebody. So a tier one person, they just show up. They don't contribute. God bless them. They're here. We love you. Keep coming. Right? Half of what we do is for you. We love you. Right? A, a tier two person is somebody who, if you ask them to do something, they'll do it. Right? H hand out these bulletins to people. When people come in, smile at them. Here's a baby. Don't drop it. That kind of stuff. Okay? A tier three leader is, is when something is happening that needs to be dealt with and you can give it to them. See how that's a difference? Where you can say, that fourth grade classroom is a mess and we need somebody to fix it. So that's, see how that's, it went from a task to a project? 
right? Or from an event to a person. So if I say, can you come up and pray with the people after the service today? So that's like a momentary test. It's with people, but it's a momentary test. But if I say, listen, there's this, this woman named Sarah who's come to the church, and she's, she's kind of got this crazy little past there, and she's this age. She's one life stage behind you. I think you could really help her if you met with her every week. And you started shepherding her in her new faith. See how that's a very different thing? I'm, now I'm taking somebody who is a sheep that's been entrusted to this fold, and I'm saying, I need you to shepherd this little you. That's a baby sheep, by the way. Right? I'm saying, right? I, I've got piles of these people. I probably got 50 of them right now that need a mentor. Right now. We need, we, got, we need at least 10 or 20 small group leaders. Somebody who I can say, can you create a hospitable space for people to come in and build each other up in their faith? Right? Ministry leaders. Small group leaders in children's ministry. There's all kinds of these places where there's something, the turbulence of gospel growth has created something that's needful. It's really important. I can't do it. And I actually need to, to not do it. And what, here's what I believe. It does not matter to me how many people have the title deacon in this church, okay? I don't, I don't care about that. And um, I hope that the deacon board gets led better. I really wish I could lead it better, you know? And Lloyd and I both wish we could give it more time. Um, but here, here, let me just, let's just put it in a different category for a second. What High Point Church, what will make the difference between whether or not we fulfill our God-given mission in the scriptures over the next 10 years or not will have very little to do with me. I'm going to basically keep doing what I've been doing. Okay, this is it, guys. Right? I don't have a leotard. Okay? This is what I do. So what's the difference going to be between what we're doing right this minute, right? Because listen, honestly, do you want to be the best thing for my sanity? If this church shrunk by a lot of people. Okay? If, if about half of us could go here to church, it'd make my life a lot easier. Now, Lloyd would have to find another job, but my life would be a lot easier. Right? Or, or one of the two of us. But like, it, it's much easier, right? It's, I, I, like, nobody, listen, I, I, there's a part of me that wants to be the celebrity pastor, but nobody's going to invite me every, anywhere, let's be honest. Okay? But what, and I, don't, I don't give a fig about this church growing. But what I do care about is people who don't know Jesus coming to him. And if they do, they will be part of this community. And if that happens, there will be turbulence. And when that turbulence comes, you will say to me, Nick, we need to take care of this turbulence. And I will say, you're right. We need to appoint some people who can handle it. Some tier three leaders. Who are essentially biblical deacons. Who will care enough and be formed enough that the elders or the pastors can give you something and not think about it again because they know that in your hands it will only thrive. And the, the future of what Jesus will do at this church will ultimately come down to whether 150 of us will take on really that mantle of life in Christ. Whether or not you get a title for anything. It will all come down to whether or not a bunch of us will take what the implications of the preached word is and take on some area of turbulence and ordinarily, but entirely non-typically, engage with that thing. And the way this passage ends, because so much happens in the first five chapters of Acts, but there's, this is the first crisis. This is the crisis that can destroy the church from the inside. This is the moment where everything that was going, it could lose all its momentum because the, the real moral authority of every, all the leading of the gospel itself could be entirely destroyed through this misuse of widows on the basis of racism is actually what's going on here. And there is this moment, and the disciples themselves, the apostles, cannot fix it. And so somebody had to be brought up to do this. And do you know what it says in verse, in verse 7? It says that when this happened, the gospel moved forward, the group of disciples in Jerusalem increased dramatically, and even many priests, who had been like the leaders of antagonism to the gospel, became obedient to the faith. Those priests that were part of those separated synagogues and split up churches, and they saw that the things that had split them up were overcome by the non-typical gospel-transformed lives of this new church, even the, the leaders of that movement came. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that you would help us to be diaconal people, 
to be a people of tier three leadership, to be a people that want to grow enough in faith and are willing, it recognize so much that our life is gonna be ordinary, that there's some meaningful thing that we can do in the gospel. But I pray first and foremost for everybody who's here today personally, that the first two things that we talked about would come like a freight train into the center of their life personally. That there would be no more avoidance and no more denial of any of the things of typical humanity that are festering in their life. I pray that there would be people here this morning that have been doing things a certain way for 30 years that would let the pride of affirming that go and would open themselves up to repentance. I pray that you would bring an enormous amount of repentance to us and that we would flee how humanity normally goes wrong that we would see it and that we would come towards Jesus and we'd trust you, God. And I pray that for all of us, there would be a renewed commitment to the centrality of the word, the centrality of the message of the gospel, the centrality of who Jesus is, the centrality of mining that out of the word of God written in the Bible, and of availing ourselves to teaching, whether that's preaching at church or the Sunday classes or small groups or whatever else. Make us a people of your word so we can be really deeply transformed and so that you can lead us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.